You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad. Deirdre Finnerty is an award-winning journalist for the BBC, specialising in international news, and she started her career in the BBC World Service and has worked in the BBC's Brussels, Washington and Westminster Bureau on Bessborough, Three Women, Three Decades, Three Stories of Courage is her first book, and the project won the Society of Authors Antonia Fraser Award in 2020. Originally from Ballinrobe County, Mayo, she now lives and works in London, and I'm delighted to have Deirdre here to talk about what is a harrowing and painful story. Thanks a million, Deirdre, for coming along. Thanks very much, Austin. Um, first thing, I, I, to put things in their context, I was blown away uh, when I was doing a little bit of um, looking at this, seeing that Bessborough in Cork was a mother and baby home, and it operated up until 1999. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I said, wow, like my two daughters were born 1979 and 1981. So mm-hmm. when when my daughter was 20, this place was still operating. Yes, and I think that's something that a lot of people hadn't realised, you know, and certainly when I work in London and I talk to this story with other people, with other people who aren't from Ireland, and that's the thing that shocks them the most, you know, how long this system of mother and baby institutions continued in Ireland. Because if you look at other countries that are quite similar to us culturally, um, you know, they did have mother and baby institutions. Of course, Ireland wasn't the only country to have mother and baby institutions, but in other countries, they largely closed by the 70s, whereas we allowed them to continue, you know, until <laughs> practically the end of the 20th century. So that's a key difference between Ireland and other countries. And also, when you look at the figures as well, Ireland, you know, detained in some way or in, put in institutions in some way the highest number of pregnant women and girls per kind of population than any other country in the world probably in the 20th century that was one of the findings of the Irish Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Institutions that um, issued its final report in 2021 so the history of this is kind of still kind of being written and there's still things we don't know and there's still things that we're finding out about it but, you know, as I find out in my book, there are a whole community of survivors who are very keen to speak about their experiences. And they've done that to leave a record um, about what happened there. And I'm really grateful to everybody who spoke to me for the book. And Deirdre, the other thing that I look at here is the numbers, particularly in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And I say that because, you know, I came out of my teenage years in the early 70s. And there was this sense, I suppose, certainly in Dublin, that there was um, an enlightenment, kind of. Like, it was not unusual for people to be living in sin in the early 70s. So, so in a way, there was this perception that uh, Ireland, uh, the, the shadow and the darkness and the shame that would have been there of being in an unmarried relationship or sleeping with somebody outside of marriage, that it was no longer taboo. And yet the figures for that period of time are higher than any of the years previous. Like that was near the worst period. Certainly the figures in the late 60s and early 70s were yeah, quite, quite high in terms of the numbers of women and girls being admitted to mother and baby institutions. Um, 
But I suppose one thing that it's important to remember is that a lot of the girls, I suppose you could call them being admitted, were kind of maybe in their late teens, you know, maybe hadn't left home yet. Um, certainly that was the case for the woman I spoke to who was there in the late 60s and also for the woman who was there in the early 70s. You know, they hadn't necessarily moved out of home yet. So, you know, and it was their first relationships practically. Um, and as a result of that, they ended up in mother and baby institutions. What I will say for that period, though, is that it wasn't like in the earlier decades where people might be there for two, three, four years um, or certainly, you know, maybe between one and three years. You know, it was a period of time they spend there would be, you know, months rather than years. But, yeah, I mean, certainly if you look at the numbers, it's perhaps a lot. It's perhaps higher than we might have thought. And um you know, while there might have been a perception in some parts of the country, in Dublin or whatever, that things were slowly becoming more liberal um, in other parts of the country, and particularly for women and girls, it, it definitely wasn't. The other thing I would imagine, Deirdre, is that the, the graph that indicates the numbers would probably be reflective of the other homes that were operational at the time also. In other words, that in that period of time, uh, there mm-hmm. would have been the same type of uh, churn? Um, I can't speak now for all of them, but certainly what I can say is that Vesper seemed to be quite a representative institution and it was certainly one of the largest. And um, yeah, I mean, I know that another mother and baby institution, St. Patrick's on the Navan Road in Dublin, um, anecdotally from speaking to people who were involved in it, they certainly suggested that the numbers there were quite similar to Vespera. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all, yeah, it's, it's hard to get a complete picture, but what we do know is that certainly for Vespera in all of the years it was in operation, we're talking about something, about something like 9,000 women and girls who were in there between 1922 and 19, um, and the late 90s, and about 10,000 children who were born there or transferred there after being born in hospital. So just for one institution, if you're if you're looking at, you know, a 70 year period for, you know, that's 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 a very big number. You know, we're talking mm-hmm. thousands, yeah, mm-hmm. thousands of people. Mm. And before we focus on Vesper, I know just down the road from where you grew up, um, you're not too far from Chewham. Yeah. And of course, the scandal of the tomb, tomb would have been, I imagine, where if somebody in and around Ballinrobe uh, were being put away, and that's literally what was happening. Girls were mm-hmm. being put away. They were probably mm-hmm. been sent to tomb from Ballinrobe. Mm-hmm. Well, I did actually speak to um, the local historian, Catherine Corliss, who's, as we know, done tremendous work on on tomb, and she said, yes, definitely, you know, there were definitely people in um the surrounding areas, if that had happened to them, yeah, that's definitely where they where they would have ended up. But the Tume Institution, though, closed in the early 60s. Right. So it's, we're talking about quite a different context to Vesper, which remained open until the late 90s. Okay. So let's then focus on Vesper. And for those who would not know geographically, Vesper is in Cork, Cork City, in the mm-hmm. Black Rock area of Cork City, and mm-hmm. uh, was operated by an, uh, the congregation of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. And uh, it mm-hmm. was regarded as one of the first special institutions mm-hmm. for unmarried mothers and their children. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
When you started into this, Deirdre, what urged you to take an interest and to put it into a book? So I work for the BBC and I work for the website where I'm a journalist. Um, and I work in London, I work in international news. So sometimes when I'm asked to write articles, I'm asked to explain a story um, for an international audience. So, um, you know, I need to be able to write it in a way that will work for somebody who's reading it in London, but equally somebody who's reading it in Singapore or Washington, that they'll all be able to understand it. Um, but I was commissioned to write a piece that would explain the whole issue of mother and baby institutions in Ireland for an international audience, because as we know, especially in international news, it's, it's, kept, it's kept cropping up, you know, over the past number of years. Um, so my editor said, well, there's been an awful lot on Shoom, but I know there's more to the story. You know, where else might, might we look? And then we decided, oh, we'd focus on Vesper because, you know, as we've been explaining here, it was one of the first to open and it was one of the last to close. And because it was one of the last to close, you know, it, it was it was easier to get in touch with people who were associated with it and, and had um, given birth there or children who or people who had been adopted from there as children. So we chose Vesper as a way of kind of illustrating the story. And we, we, we did a piece, 5,000 word piece on the website that spoke to mothers who had given birth there, people who had been adopted there as children. And it, it we published it on the BBC website and it went viral in a way that we didn't expect. Um, so I can't say that I woke up one morning and said, oh, I'll write a book about this. I did an article about it. And then following that article, which did well, I had an approach from a publisher. But even then I thought, oh, well, it's a very tricky topic. And I know I knew it would be very difficult for people. So I didn't go into it lightly. You know, I had to kind of speak to people about how they'd feel about it and, and really make sure I, I had spoken to, to people who were sure they wanted to go through uh, with the project. So so it did take a long time, but we got there in the end, and I'm very glad that we did. You focus on three women. And I do, yeah. That means that you were able to give detailed attention to their stories rather than, as often happens in something like this, uh, somebody will uh, take vignettes from a large number of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the three people that you focused on, um, I, I haven't had the opportunity to read the book, but mm-hmm. can you give me a sense of the, the commonality and the differences between, the differences them, between them, them that, that encouraged you to focus on these three? So I worked with women who were there in three different decades. So the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. Um, so what was common to all of them is that they were all very young teenagers. When I say very young, that they were all teenagers when they were admitted, either 18 and 19, and you know, they hadn't really left home, or they had maybe, for, in one case, she'd been in university for a couple of months. Um, and that was common to all of them. Also, what was common to all of them is that they all lost their children to adoption and they said that that was something that they didn't want. And what was different about all of them is, you know, in the 1960s, the regime that was described, you know, the the atmosphere there, um, that seemed a lot harsher. And the woman I spoke to from the 1960s described, you know, wearing a uniform and, um, you know, doing quite heavy work. Uh, whereas, you know, in the 1980s, you could see that that had all of that had kind of changed and she was allowed to continue um, her university exams. And she, you know, 
described an entirely different regime. So you can you, you could track kind of the social changes by by looking at the 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, the woman from the 70s was perhaps one of the last women to be repatriated from London to a baby institution in Ireland. And, and that had kind of largely petered out by the by the early 70s. So she was one of the last women that that happened to. Um, but what was different is that, um, yeah, I mean, the regime was certainly different. How they were treated as well was a little bit different. But it, it, what struck me the most is, is actually how a lot of things had remained the same in terms of societal attitudes and how actually ultimately the outcome was the same. So even though somebody was in there in the 1980s and somebody was in there in the 1960s, they were, in terms of what happened to them, they both lost their children. So the person who was there in the 1980s wasn't more likely to, so, so she, she, she didn't have the opportunity to keep her child. So, you know, really while on the surface, some things might have changed. Um, ultimately, you know, the important, the, the main thing was is that she couldn't keep her child. So by tracking their three stories, it, it kind of allowed me to, to show that. But they were also women who were really, really very strong and had a desire to kind of leave a record of their experiences and could describe things in great detail. And, you know, it was really fantastic to get to know them and to hear their stories and, how things that affected them kind of long term over their life, because I think sometimes when we cover stories like this, we kind of hear a little bit about what happened in the, in the institution and then kind of that's it, that's over. But we don't really talk about kind of the, the long term effects and how, you know, the women involved, they spent decades, you know, in some cases trying to search for their children. And that can really impact someone, you know, having to, you know, those decades of not knowing where their child is and not really having any clear information. So that was something that that really came through in the book as well. And Deirdre, when you talk about that, um, I, I was thinking in terms of the longer term effect as well on things like mental health mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the recovery process that people mm-hmm. have to deal with when they go through something like this and how that may have changed or had that changed so as that the young girl who was admitted in the 60s versus the 70s versus the 80s mm. had society, the healing, the ability to heal uh, or to deal with the pain. Were you able to detect that there had been any evolution in that? Um, what I would say is, the woman from the 1970s, she was so clear on, you know, what she called a sort of a living bereavement. But she sort of described it as if she almost didn't know what the triggers were. Um, and she almost didn't know why she felt the way she did, because mental health wasn't something that was openly talked about in Ireland. So she talked very clearly about that impact on her and um, how... You know, it was only in later life when she started to learn a bit more about mental health and when she kind of went back to university and studied social work that she realized, oh, God, all these years I've been impacted in in these ways. And these certain things are triggering me and triggering memories. And I need to learn how to avoid that. And, you know, so, you know, in her case, I think it took a very long time to kind of 
realize what she needed to do for the recovery process and maybe the woman in the 80s as well that was a little bit quicker but it also still for her took a long time before she kind of came to a time in her life where she accessed counseling and went through a deep process of kind of of dealing with everything um but still that was still quite late on in her life actually um and certainly one of the women that was very key for her she wanted to talk about mental health and and the impact it had on her so that you know other people would um learn from her experience um so she was very generous in that respect what i find fascinating on one level is that we live in a society uh particularly at the age i am and i was born in the 50s mm-hmm. and i meet people and you have no clue when you meet somebody what they may have gone through mm-hmm. and there's this delusion i suppose that because somebody now appears to be living in a comfortable lifestyle that their past just it doesn't exist we kind of are at this point in time and we take for granted the past and yet there are so many people who would have had such traumatic experiences to come mm-hmm. through um as a society i i guess i'm i would be reflecting that that's the way society is also mm-hmm. and has society i know that there were efforts to uh, or that there were um compensation um schemes for various mother and baby homes that does not fully just putting compensation on the table doesn't redress what needs to be redressed well a lot of survivors would say that Austin what you said that you know compensation is not the full picture now i don't speak on behalf of survivors i'd never do that but what i will say is that some survivors that i've spoken to have said that actually what's another important form of redress is access to all the information that they need in the documents mm-hmm. and that's another thing that's really important to them um so yeah there was certainly a lot of controversy over the redress scheme in ireland because there were certain limits on it which meant that certain groups of people were excluded so there was controversy over that um among survivors groups but at the moment there's no plans to change that um but you know there are um bills going through the oroxus at the moment that should help to improve information access but there are some survivors groups who say that actually they don't go far enough so it's a conversation that we'll be continuing to return to in Ireland I think over the next few months definitely over the next few years because for um yeah there are still people who don't have access to all of the information that they need and there are still people who um you know haven't been able to find out where their children are buried and dear did you get a sense from those that you spoke to that there was a need for accountability Yes. Um certainly one of the women I spoke to definitely felt that there was a need for greater accountability. However, there was also um 
a sort of fatigue amongst some survivors because it had been going on for so long um, in terms of the various processes, commission of investigation, all of that. And so there was a sort of a weariness, weariness as well. Um, and some survivors I talked to said, well, actually, you know, I just want to move on now. Um, so there was there was that sense of kind of almost being very tired with the whole thing. Um, but I don't know how the you're there in Canada. And I know conversations are, are kind of being had about this at the moment. And I'm wondering kind of I'd just be very interested to know where things are at with that. Well, I know, as you know, there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was mm-hmm. uh, published a document um, and similar type situations here uh, at a number of levels with certainly the um, the residential homes for the First Nations. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, there are still many, many, many unanswered uh, questions and there are many um situations that are left unfinished mm-hmm. in in so many different ways um so yeah like they, that's the other aspect i suppose that there's a common thread that what happened in in Bespera was not unique in no. in many ways and nor was what happened in ireland unique um mm-hmm. and i remember many years ago i was in a car with somebody and they were talking about frank mccourt and Angela's ashes, and they were talking about how the horrendous situation and the poverty in Ireland at that time. And I remember saying, you know, here in Canada was no different. It's just that the description may be different, but the situation was basically the same. And I think that would apply here also. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm not really too well up on, you know, the history of of Canada, but I do know about the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that have been going on. Um, but yeah, certainly in terms of mother and baby institutions, yes, Ireland was definitely not the the only country in which they were operating for sure. Um, but I suppose what was unique to Ireland is that they remained open for an awful lot longer than in other countries. So, dear, going back to the book, it's hit the shelves. Uh, where can people get it, and uh, what has the reaction been to it? So, the reaction um, has been, you know, very good. I've had a lot of survivors get in touch with me um, about some of, you know, their own personal stories. You know, there was somebody who came up to me in, in Waterstones and told me her own story, and and. Um, you know, I, th- I think if that's the kind of impact that it's having, and I'm really pleased with that. Um, how else? I mean, it has hit the nonfiction bestseller list in Ireland, which I'm really pleased to see. Um, and where can people buy it? Well, you can buy it, you know, online on any Irish bookshop retailer. Um, also on Amazon, and it's also available on Kindle. And I know for readers in Canada, if they wanted to get a paperback book delivered, Book Depository might be a place to go. Um, but I can send you a link as well with, with some of the various options too. And one, has did you get any negative reaction? Uh, so far, I've been very lucky and I haven't had negative reaction as yet. But a lot of the reaction that I've had is, you know, just so much positivity towards the women who are in the book who have shared their experiences and people have just, you know, reacted so positively to them and their stories. 
um, and they think that they are amazing women. And Deirdre, I want to thank you for taking the time. We've been chatting with Deirdre Finnerty about her book, Bespera, Three Women, Three Decades, Three Stories of Courage. And it has been a real pleasure and honour chatting with you, Deirdre. Thanks very much, Austin. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.